0: Sometimes you need to make sure that people know something. Uh, Like when we go out for dinner on a family occasion, I impress upon my kids the need to be on their best behaviour. Or if there's a bushfire danger, the authorities want to make sure that people know about it. In the wake of Black Saturday, the uh, Victorian bushfires earlier this year, there's been a whole scale investigation into why people weren't warned earlier or told of the magnitude of the bushfire, when something's so important, you want to make sure people know. In the last three chapters of 1 Timothy, Paul has something he wants to make sure the church knows. And what he wants, urged upon the church, impressed upon our hearts and our minds, is that to hold up the truth, our godliness is really important. The word of God urges us this morning to be godly. So let's pray and ask God that we'll heed his call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that as you call on us and command us to be godly, that this morning we would have soft, soft hearts, ears that are very quick to listen, minds that are transformed, that we would live in glad, humble obedience to you, our loving Heavenly Father. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, as we've seen over the past couple of talks, if you've been here, 1 Timothy is all about church holding up God's truth. In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says he wrote this letter so that church would know how to conduct itself as a pillar of the truth. We are to hold the truth up, and that's what the letter is all about. How we do that is summarized by the three trustworthy sayings that are in the letter. This morning, we're up to the third saying, and so uh, as we begin to think about it, we're going to begin with the third trustworthy saying. So make sure you can see chapter 4 and verse 7, and we'll see that we're to hold up the truth by being godly. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This trustworthy saying is all about the importance of godliness, in other words, living for God, being like him, obeying God, training ourselves in godliness so that as a church we will hold up God's truth. As I was growing up, when the family went out in public, uh, us kids, we were always on our best behavior because mum and dad weren't people you wanted to embarrass. It wasn't just because of their authority over us, but because of their love for us. And every now and then, people would come up to mum and dad when we were in a restaurant having a meal, and they'd comment on us kids being a credit to them. Now, as God's kids, as God's people, we want to be a credit to him, don't we? not just because of his good authority over us, but also because of his love. We want to hold up his truth by the way we live. But just in case we need reminding, Paul stresses the importance of godliness. The rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6 spell out how, where to be godly, and all the way through it, Paul urges Timothy to make sure the church knows it. At least six times Paul stresses the need for this teaching to be given to the church. And so we're going to read them to feel the urgency. So have a look this time. Chapter 4, verse 11. Paul simply tells Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11, command and teach these things. Now skip across to chapter 5, verse 7. Halfway through giving instructions on widows, Paul says, verse 7, give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. Then down to verse 21. Paul opts the ante to Timothy here. Chapter 5, verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Then down at the end of verse 2 in chapter 6. After giving instructions on slaves, Paul says, chapter 6, the very end of verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Paul hasn't finished yet. Keep going to verse 13 now. Paul has some personal remarks for Timothy. Verse 13. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, down to verse 17, where Paul has some strong words for those who are rich. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. You see, the Apostle Paul wants to make sure the church knows this stuff. He wants it urged upon us, taught to us, given to us, commanded to us, impressed upon our hearts and minds. So let's have a look so that we'll know how to hold up God's truth in godliness. And the first thing Paul wants us to know about our godliness is that it's found in Christ, not in ourselves. Our godliness is not about finding some personal inner strength to be able to pull it off. Our godliness is in Christ himself. So back to chapter 3 and verse 16, where we discover that the mystery or the secret of godliness, how we do it, it's not a secret anymore. It's Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. You see, the source of our godliness is Christ. Because his death and resurrection is paid for our sin. He's the one we believe on. He's the one who was taken up into glory and has poured out his spirit on people. Our godliness is found in Christ. And so we're not to try and be godly on our own. You can't do it by finding the right rules and mustering up the strength to try and obey them. But people will tell you that you can. In the church where Timothy was, there were false teachers emphasising that it was all about what you do or don't do. So we read in the beginning of chapter 4 that they forbid marriage and they command certain foods not to be eaten. These false teachers had a strange mix of Jewish and rigid self-disciplined teachings pointing you to yourself as your own saviour. But as Paul says, your godliness isn't found in you. So if you try and be godly in your own strength... You're barking up the wrong tree. You're driving down a dead end road. Because your godliness is found in Christ. He's the one who produces it in us. Because He's already cleansed us from our sin by His death and resurrection. And He's given us His Spirit to change us to be godly. Now, this doesn't mean that you sit back and let go and let God. Uh, in verse 7, we read train yourselves in godliness, where to strive for obedience to Christ, but not in our own strength. Instead, relying on Christ to produce it in us. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul spells out some practical ways that we're to be godly. And as we look at some of what he says, we need to rely on Christ to be able to do them. Ask him to strengthen us by his spirit to be able to do these things. And the first area of godliness urged on us as a church family is how we treat one another. Verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll see what Timothy was told to do as a model for the church, and it's all about loving your church family as family. Chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So for us as a church to hold up the truth, we are to treat each other like family. Now, depending on your experience of family, that can be taken a few ways, I'd reckon. But I think it's safe to say that when he says treat older women as mothers, he's not saying we should get them to clean up after us. I reckon that's pretty safe. When he says we should treat younger men as brothers, I don't think he's saying we should pick on them and argue with them. Paul's saying, as a church family, love respect, honour each other. Because this will hold up God's truth. But if we're not like that, well, it'll just bring shame on God's truth. If we're a bunch of bickering, bitter backstabbers, well, tearing each other down, who would want to be involved in our truth? Instead, we're to revere the older ones. We're to love and protect the younger ones. Living as a family should be, as a church family should be. And this is a lovely but hard way to hold up the truth. This isn't easy, but as we do it, we'll show people that God's truth transforms lives because we'll be a gathering of people who love and honour and protect each other, even if we don't naturally get along. And since our godliness is found in Christ, well, let's pray now that by his spirit, he'll enable us to love each other as family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your spirit and that he empowers and enables us to be godly. And so, Father, we want to ask uh, now that your spirit would be at work powerfully within us to treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, our younger men as brothers, and our younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Fill us, Father, we pray, with love for one another. Amen. Now, for much of the rest of chapter 5, Paul moves on to a specific group in the church family that we're to look after, and that's widows. Uh, But not every widow. As a church, we're to look after the godly widows who are really in need. And a widow is really in need if she has no one else, uh, no family of her own to look after her. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, well, they're to look after her, not the church. So have a look at chapter 5 and verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Paul's got similar words. Uh, but stronger words down in verse 8. So have a look there, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, it's the same idea down in verse 16. Verse 16 this time. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. There's two things going on here. One, if you have widows in your family, either your parents or your grandparents, you should help them to save the church from being burdened with them. So that, two, the church can help those widows who are in need and have no one else to help them. Now, I think we can broaden this out a bit from not just widows, but people in need in general. And we've got lots of examples, praise God, across the DPC, of this sort of thing happening. I know of families who are looking after their parents and their grandparents. I know of others who are in need and are being helped by their church family because they've got no one else to help them. And this is lovely and good on you. But in order for us to keep doing this and to do it better, here's something we'll need. Time. For you and I to look after our parents and our grandparents when they're in need, we'll need time. For you and I to look after those in our church family when they're in need, we'll need time. But in our culture, time has become as important as money. We're all so busy as we juggle work and family and school and running after kids and all their activities and church and just managing life. You know, getting the washing done can sometimes be a bit of a squeeze. And if we live like this, how will we squeeze our parents and our grandparents in to our schedules when they're in need? And how will we squeeze members of our church family into our schedules when they're in need? Instead of cramming as much as we can into our weeks so that when unexpected things come up, they just throw everything out, why not have space inbuilt into your week? Why not have a degree of flexibility inbuilt into your routines so that you can look after your family when they're in need? And you can look after your church family when they're in need. This is a very different way to thinking about your time than than the way the world thinks about it. They're working out how to maximise their time in terms of having it for themselves. I'm talking about prioritising and managing your time to have some left over for others. And in our culture, we need to ask ourselves, how well-placed are we to do this so that we can care for people in need? Because when we do, we'll hold up the truth well. As we look after our parents and our grandparents, as we look after our church family, it'll be plain to see that being Christian makes a tremendous difference to life. That God's truth is real and attractive because of the love it produces in us. So let's pray and ask that God will help us in holding up his truth by caring for those in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again that by your spirit you are changing us and transforming us to be godly and uh, now we want to ask that by your spirit we would love and care for our parents and for our grandparents when they're in need father we pray that you would by your spirit enable us to love and to care for each other when we are in need and father we ask this that as a church family it would be very clear that your truth has transformed us And that we would hold up your truth well. And that as people look at us live, they would want to know who is Jesus. And we pray this for his sake. Amen. All right, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul uh, keeps listing off more groups of people and how they're to live in order to hold up uh, the truth. We haven't got time to look at them all. So we're going to finish with Paul's commands to the rich in chapter 6 because... By any measurement of wealth across history and across our world today, here in Australia, we're rich. Uh, We're buying our own homes. We've got two cars. We've got big TVs. We go on holidays. We go on nice holidays. We're rich. And as we'll see, there's nothing wrong with being rich. It's just dangerous. Dangerous for us in our own salvation. Dangerous for us as a church family. And what they do to us as we try and hold up the truth. So let's have a look at the teachings that are urged and commanded on us as we think about how to be godly with our riches. So we'll go from chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Please tell me you feel the weight of these verses. God says, if you want to get rich, you will fall into temptation and into many harmful desires. And these harmful desires plunge men into ruin and destruction. Learn from the mistakes of others, Paul warns. Look at it again, the end of verse 10. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wandered from the faith. Turned their back on the Lord Jesus himself, pierced with many griefs, plunged into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You don't tell a child to... Please, if they don't mind, as long as it's okay, if it's not too much trouble, would they mind not touching the hot plate because, you know, it might hurt you? You tell a child in no uncertain terms, you command them, don't touch the hot plate. You urge upon them the need to be safe because you love them and you want to save them from grief and pain. The love of money is our hot plate. The love of money can ruin and destroy you. It can lure you away from Christ. And so as Paul speaks to us in no uncertain terms. He commands us, he urges us to instead be generous with our wealth, to share our riches, to sit loose to it all, so that we can sit tight to Jesus. Down to verse 17, chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Feel the urgency in these words, won't you? We're commanded not to be arrogant. Not to put our hope in wealth. We're commanded to put our hope in God. Commanded to do good. To be rich in good deeds. Commanded to be generous and willing to share. And remember, it's for your own good. It's to safeguard you from loving money so that you remain Christian. So that you won't wander from the faith. So that you won't be plunged into ruin and destruction. But it's not just for your sake it's for our sake as well. Because as a church, we're trying to hold up the truth. We're trying to tell the world and show the world that Jesus Christ is Lord, not money, that the truth that all of life is a pursuit of Christ and his honor, not the mighty dollar. And if you're claiming to live for Jesus, but really living for money, well, then you're going to undercut us as we try and hold up the truth, because you'll look just like the rest of the world and you'll make Jesus into just some other accessory that you have in your life, not the risen Lord that he actually is. So I'll repeat it for us. We're commanded to do good, to be rich in good deeds, commanded to be generous and willing to share. So here's a few ideas for you as you work out who to share your money with. And probably the first people we should be willing to share our money with is our own church family. No one else is going to support the work of the gospel here at DPC except us. And if there's people in need amongst us, well, we should be quick to give to them. Secondly, share your riches with organisations that are involved in holding up the truth just like we are. Only Christians are going to fund the promotion of God's truth, so give your money to... Uh, people who train and support gospel workers. Like the Ministry Training t- Strategy, they train people in ministry apprenticeships for two years or a Bible college or a mission organisation or groups like OCA who partner with the most strategic Bible colleges in the developing world. They support and train home-grown leaders in countries like Pakistan, Lebanon, Kenya, China. A third idea of who to share your money with is organisations that help the poor, not just with material aid, but with the truth of Jesus as well, Uh, like compassion, for example. Now, in all this talk of godliness, loving each other as a family, having the time to care for our parents and grandparents and for our church family when they're in need, being generous with our money, we need to be clear on the urgency and the importance of our godliness. Remember, the Apostle Paul, he really wants us to know this stuff. He wants it urged upon us, taught to us, commanded to us, given to us, impressed upon our hearts and minds, and not just for our sakes, but for the sake of God's truth. As a church, we're God's household, his home, and he's made us a pillar of his truth. You don't get called to be on the Australian football team to go fishing. You don't get invited to dinner with a prime minister and give the excuse of needing to work on your stamp collection. And you don't get called by God to be a pillar of his truth. Commanded by God to hold up his truth by your godliness and give the excuse of it's all a bit too hard and I can't be bothered. So we train ourselves to be godly. And we also need to remember that godliness, our godliness is found in Jesus. He's the one who has cleansed us from sin. He's given us his spirit to give us new hearts So that we will obey God. He empowers us to live in godliness. So in the power of the spirit of Christ. For your sake. For our sake. For the sake of God's truth. And for the sake of Christ who came into the world to save you. Love each other. Care for those in need. Share your money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a clear word from you this morning. And we pray that by your spirit, we would warm to these words. We would love 1 Timothy chapters 4, 5 and 6. That we would be quick to love each other as family. That we would be quick to care for those in need. That we would be quick to share our money. That by your spirit, you would produce this in us, we pray. For the sake of Christ. Because, Father, we want to sit loose to the things of this world. That we might sit tight to him. Always trusting him to be our Lord and Saviour. Because he came to this world to save sinners. So we pray this for his glory. That we might continue to trust in him. Amen.